Shelton, your host. Thank you very much for inviting me into your home again this week. I'm very happy to be here. We have an interesting show for you today, an interesting interview, and I need to kind of uh, set it up a little bit because there's a lot to know about the Branch Davidians, uh, David Koresh, and the Waco siege. The, the Waco tragedy is what I will refer to it as because the entire thing from beginning to end was wholly wholly preventable. None of it needed to happen. Uh, from February 28th to April 19th, 1993, for 51 days, there was a siege at the Mount Carmel facility of the Branch Davidians, their main headquarters in uh, Waco, Texas, uh, due to the fact that the group had been reportedly stockpiling uh, weapons, uh, converting uh, semi-automatic weapons to full automatic weapons, uh, getting importing uh, grenades and explosives and various things, some of which was true, some of which, you know, uh, might have been exaggerated a little bit, but a postal worker and other people had made these reports, and the Bureau of uh, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, the ATF, decided that this was going to be a, uh, as far as I can tell, decided this was going to be an opportunity to get on the map and make it big and, and make their make themselves well-known. And they had alerted the media that they were going to be carrying out a raid on the Mount Carmel facility. They could have very easily done a number of other things that would not have been anywhere near as forceful or inflammatory or uh, hostile. But they decided they were going to go about it this way, even after the operation was blown and they knew that the Branch Davidian compound and all of the people there were aware of the fact that they were coming and that these were and that the whole basis of the raid was that they had serious firepower in that facility and were willing to use it. So from the very get-go, this was just a complete botch. And as a former FBI negotiator who was not on the scene there, he's since gone on to, to other things and, and was much more successful than, than the, what happened at Waco. But a former FBI negotiator, uh, Chris Voss, has uh, commented that this and the Ruby Ridge disaster were the basis for a, a complete reformation of how the uh, FBI deals with hostage situations. You know, we haven't uh, necessarily seen something uh, as horribly awful as this. In total, uh, there were 86 people who died. There were four ATF agents who died on scene, I think, or were killed uh, pretty straight away uh, in this raid. Again, didn't need to even happen. And uh, following that, um, there was this 51-day siege. They did manage to negotiate a bunch of people, some kids, some women, did get out. It wasn't a total loss, um, but the government operations were, were fuddled. They were error-ridden. They, they were clashing with one another between the negotiations team and the more heavy-handed, uh, let's go in there and shoot kind of approach, which was honestly their approach up until this time when when uh, afterwards, like I said, a bit of a, of a review of all of this was done. Uh, and of course, David Koresh, the leader of this whole thing, was not, you know, I, I, can, I can talk all day long about those 
problems and issues with the government. On the other hand, and what we're going to talk about today in detail is David Koresh, the leader of this whole thing and the sort of spark that ignited all of this in the first place, because he was not a good man. He, uh, by any metric you care to use, he was a child abuser and rapist. He uh, was a religious fanatic, and he was absolutely the epitome of your fanatical, true believer cult leader. He really was. He checks every box. And so we look at both sides of this and go, the whole thing was just a disaster. And I don't, I don't, that's how I look at it as, you know, from my knowledge and experience with all of this. But finally, I have uh, been contacted by a man named David Buns, who is my guest today. And he was raised in or very familiar with and part of the uh, Branch Davidians and, uh, and David Koresh. And he got out actually like kind of just before this whole disaster happened. So, David, welcome to my show. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. Uh, miss anything important in that synopsis there, you think? Uh, no, that's a good that's a good synopsis. I will say uh, when I when you say I just got out uh, before it happened, let's let's call that yeah. um, four years before it happened. Fair enough. So, Fair yeah. enough. Yeah. So Roughly. let's go ahead and get into for the audience here. Who are you and how are you relevant to all of this? And because you've been talking about this, you have your own YouTube channel. You contributed to a book about Koresh. What what's what, so where do we start with you? Well, it starts with my father. Uh, so, uh, disclaimer, uh, Seventh-day Adventists obviously don't want anything to do with any of this. But unfortunately, Seventh-day Adventists uh, have offshoot groups, and one of them was the Branch Davidians. Okay. And so my father ran into them when he was young. So then by the time I was five years old, my father's coming back into the group. And so from the age of five, I was raised a Branch Davidian. Now, in that time, there's no David Koresh. It's it's Branch Davidian prophets, pretty standard Protestant stuff with a little extra apocalyptic flavor to it. So we're talking about the end of the world and expecting to go to Israel and for the, any day for the kingdom and things like that. So mm. you, uh, now... If I might interrupt you for oh, just yes, a second, could you flesh that out a little bit, just for people who aren't familiar with Protestantism or Seventh Day Adventism, or well, like okay, what, what's so the basic? Very quickly, yeah, Seventh Day Adventism is um, one of these very many American religions that are come out of the 19th century. So Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh Day Adventism, uh, Christian Science mm. during that era. So Seventh Day Adventism starts with uh, what's called the Millerite movement, and there's a guy who says, "Hey, Jesus is coming." It, of course, it doesn't work out. There's a disappointment. There's a, a reorganization, and then people coalesce around a new idea of, "Oh, Jesus is in heaven doing special stuff." Instead of coming to Earth, he's doing things in heaven, and then they form an organization in the civil during the Civil War, eighteen sixty three, and become the Seventh Day Adventist Church. Mm, okay. And then from from then on, now the interesting thing about the Seventh Day Adventists, which is really important, is they had a prophetess. Her name was Ellen G. White. You can look her up. She's fairly famous amongst religious studies. You know, uh, as far as if you're an Adventist or if you study American religions, you'll probably heard of her. And she is believed to be an inspired prophet of God. Uh, she passed away in 1915. Okay. 
And so she was in the church uh, giving uh, her visions and dreams and writing out, you know, testimonies and books. And she's an enormously prolific author. That's very yeah. interesting. Very prolific, huh? Oh, like there's so much. Uh, and so it's like an enormous corpus. Interesting. Uh, that similar, you spend to, similar to Elrond Hubbard. Reading your stuff. Yeah, which I'm sure you're familiar with. There's Scientology the same way. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Lots it, to read. <laughs> it, it makes me think right away. I mean, I know that's just one data point, but it does, and that and the religious fervor make me wonder um, about temporal lobe epilepsy. But that's a that's kind of a different topic. But I just thought I'd, I'd haul that one out for a second. It's thought that L. Ron Hubbard might have suffered from temporal lobe epilepsy, and that might have been the cause of a great deal of his religious fervor. Yeah, sure. I mean, when because right? Ellen G. White had an accident when she was young. She mm. was struck by a rock, and it almost killed her. And then from that point on, uh, when she became like 17, 18, she started having visions. There we go. There and, it is. And dreamed. And so, yeah, who yeah. like maybe there's something going on there. Sure. We don't know for sure. Yeah. It's, it's just an interesting comment yeah. really that's all i'm sort of just throwing it out there but please carry on so so this was the foundation or the formation of seventh-day adventists and then right. when do branch davidian and what is that and when does that come into play okay well so branch davidian is a hyphenated term so it's history so first there were the davidians and uh, the reason why they're called davidians is because they believed in a davidic kingdom so so in other words after king david in some fashion right well a latter day david okay yeah. Um, so instead of Jesus coming, which is what a lot of Christians typically are looking for, the Davidians are looking for the kingdom. Uh, it's very similar to a Jehovah's Witness concept. Mm. I don't know if you've ever seen Jehovah's Witness tracks, uh, but okay. they have uh, they show people living in this very beautiful uh, earthly setting, and everything's green and pretty and wonderful, and yeah. it's all just so like a utopia essentially. So that's what the Davidians are looking for. Okay, I have a, I have an on earth kind of concept. Yeah, yeah, and this is going to be right. something that happens before Christ even comes. And oh. then uh the head the leader of this group his name was Victor Hodup. He was from Bulgaria, so he immigrated early 20th century. He then became an Adventist. He then, hey, I've got a message. He then gets a following, eventually separates from the church and begins an organization in Waco, Texas. Now, it wasn't located where the fire was. That's a later location. But they were in Waco. They did have a location where they built up an organization from about 1935 to 1950, 60, 1960. They printed literature and, and sent out proselytes, proselytizing. Uh, they proselytized, uh, proselytized uh, Seventh-day Adventist churches. Okay. You know, would go to the churches and knock on their door and, hey, and listen to us. And they sent out literature. They collected. It was a huge um, uh, effort to get their message out to the Adventist church up until about 1960 when the organization uh, was dissolved uh, intentionally. Mm, um, the and then, But there were other organizations that then sprouted up. And so there's still even Davidians today, actually. Uh, so those would not be Branch Davidians. That's the important thing to remember. Got it. Okay. All right. So then the leader that I mentioned, Victor Hott, if he did pass away in 1955, so then there's another guy that comes on the scene. His name was Benjamin Roden. 
And mm -hmm. he was the leader of the Branch Davidians. And the Branch thing means uh, it's a it's in the Bible, uh, Zechariah. It is a religious fi figure in the Bible who is the the new name, who's the new he's the leader of this new um, movement coming around. It's if if you want to get into the scholarship of the Bible, it has to do with the return from Babylon. Uh, we have a Babylonian captivity in the Bible. The Jews are Jews go into captivity. Well, they come back, and then there's these scriptures in the Bible that talk about the branch, and he's going to do everything and solve everybody's problem, and he's the he's the big Kahuna, and the and so the branch is a very uh, interesting apocalyptic scriptural reference. Oh. Branch the the leader of the Branch Davidians taps into that particular scripture and and decides to name the organization the branch. Okay. And, then, okay. and then and then tacks on to the previous title. So the full the full name of the organization was the Branch Davidian Seventh Day Adventists. <laughs> it's wow. quite a mouthful. Yeah, I get it. I get yeah. it. And of yeah. course, with our more English understanding of the word branch, I think a lot of people get this concept that there's sort of, you know, some breakaway group from yeah, you know, right. something yeah. like that, right? But that's really not what it means at all, the, which is the why the idea I'm really, is yeah. the idea is a branch growing out of uh the stump of Jesse. So in other words, you have the family of David uh in the Bible there's a scripture and it says that you're going to have this stump but a new branch is going to grow out mm -hmm. to reestablish the Davidic kingdom line. Okay, and that's so we're going to regrow that lost Got kingdom. It. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's not obvious. <laughs> no, no, it's not. And nobody yeah. in the reporting during the time no. ever went into any of this. You know, they were just in, getting uh, the people We can talk out. a little bit more about this later, but but technically David Koresh didn't want the, his group to be called the Branch Davidians. No. Oh. But it happened by default. Okay. Be, and yeah. Okay. So, okay. So then, so we have this this Branch Davidian Seventh-day Adventist organization that has kind of sprung up, 1950s. Uh, this Roden person is running this thing. How does it, how does that progress to David Koresh? Okay, so Benjamin Roden eventually uh, gets a hold of the, of the Davidian property. Uh, so in the 50s, they moved to the current location, the location where the fire occurred. All right, Mount Carmel. Uh, but facility. that originally belonged to the Davidians. So they, the, as I said, the Davidians dissolved their association. The wife of the prophet that I mentioned from Bulgaria, Hauda, Florence Hauda, she's decided, you know what, I'm, I'm done. This isn't working. Let's just wrap up shop and sell the assets. The Branch Davidians in 1965 got title to the property, so they set up camp there. And yeah, so then from that point onward, they were based there until the death of Benjamin Roden, who died in 1978. But his wife, Lois Roden, had already herself established herself as a prophetess. So she was there when he died. She was already there saying, you know, hey, I've got also a message from God. And and so started teaching. And and so that was the environment that David Koresh came into at the time. Vernon Howell was his name. So he, he comes to the Branch Davidians in 1981 as a student. Oh, so back up just one second. Let me highlight that. So okay. David Koresh was not his actual name. 
No, that's a prophetic name. Okay. It's a, it's a name that he chose based on his Bible teachings. Right. Yeah. Okay, so Vernon Howell shows up on the property and says, Hi. Right, he's, 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 he's a Seventh-day Adventist mm -hmm. who had heard about the Branch Davidians. He had heard about Lois Roden, and so he came interested in the, the teachings. Okay. And so from 1981 onward, uh, he was just a student, and then in 1983, he managed to convince Lois Roden, hey, why don't you let me teach a message? I have something to say. Mm. And that's when he began. Oh, okay, 1983. So he was about 10 years. From 83 to 93, obviously, the fire, yep. he had about a 10-year ministry. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And what was at this point now, having, you know, understood the his the backstory here on Seventh-day Adventists and and the branch and and the Davidians, what is the gospel at this point? What's the, what are what are these people gathering around? Do we know at this point in 19, let's say arbitrarily 1983 when he starts up? How many folks um, okay, are we well, talking about there, and what are they gathering yeah. around? Okay, well, the whole concept, going all the way back to the Adventists, is that um, since the Adventists have a prophetess, um, the whole concept is on this idea of new light. Okay, mm -hmm. so your standard evangelical Christians, say your Baptists, your Methodists, your Presbyterians, whatever, they've got the Bible, and then you just learn that, and you're you're set, mm -hmm. <laughs> and you've got your your catechisms with your your creeds and your and everything's. But with Seventh Day Adventists and all these other movements I've mentioned, the idea is well, we have more light, and the light comes through a messenger sent from God, and then they have a message, and then they tell you the message, and if you reject the message, as, of course, Adventists told this Victor Hodoff guy, hey, uh, no, thank you. We don't want anything to do with your message, and then, oh, well, you're rejecting new light. Uh-oh, you're in trouble. Right. <laughs> and that just keeps happening. Okay. So just keep following down the line. The Benjamin Roden told the Davidians, uh-oh, David Koresh told you guys, you better listen to me. I've, I've got some new light here, and you better watch out. If you don't accept it, you're going to be in big trouble. So it's not just – so what I'm getting at is what, to answer your question, it's to follow the new light and to be okay. up to date. It's kind of like having the latest software patch. you got to be up to date because – because otherwise you're going to be not know the truth and then you'll be left behind. Interesting. So this yeah. is a sort of rolling, progressing, yeah. changing it, it, dogma. It was called progressive truth. Oh, there we go. Okay. You have to progress with progressive truth. You better progress with the truth. Got it. Okay. Yeah. All right. As brought forward by the prophets and prophets. Yeah, it's got you got to have a prophet uh, because otherwise you don't know what, what's going on. And yeah. is there any sort of process? Did the Koresh have to go through some ritual exercise? Uh, anything? Well, he had he had to come into the group and learn the message first, mm -hmm. and become uh, become fluent in it, mm -hmm. so that when he approached Lois Roden, and and this is unusual. I mean, because like I said, normally the prophet would die, and then you'd get a message, but she was still alive, right? Uh, and then I also need to mention something really important. Mm -hmm. 
unfortunate. Uh, well, to just elaborate a little bit here, um, as I mentioned, um, the husband had a message that was Benjamin Roden, and his wife had a message, Lois Roden. They had originally expected their son, their eldest son, to have a message. Mm. This this was all this was set up and expected and. Um, <laughs> they believed that Benjamin Roden was antitypical David. So in other words, type is the original model in the Bible, and then the antitype is the the fulfillment in modern times. Mm. That's the idea. You've mm -hmm. got, you know, so, but Benjamin Roden died, and in, in the Bible, Solomon builds the temple. Well, Solomon was David's son. George was Ben Roden's son. So George was supposed to build the modern temple. Mm. And Lois Roden also agreed. Now, the problem with George, unfortunately, is he had he had a mental illness. Oh. Uh, in the sense that, um, well, Tourette's was part of it, I'm sure. And then also there was some behavioral management issues in terms of anger management and things. Uh, ultimately, he ended up in a in a psychiatric facility. Uh, by 1998, he had he passed away of a heart attack. Oh, but he was an opponent of David Koresh back in the 80s when David Koresh, as Vernon Howell, first came to the group. So they started butting heads into a competition mm. because the son perceived him as a threat, rightly so. And Lois Roden, the mother, eventually kind of adopted David Koresh as a son informally and gave and let him teach. Mm. So she was kind of favoring him. From her point of view later on, though, because I think that she probably regretted it later. But yeah, at the uh, time, she thought this was a good thing to do. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, um, so I guess from this, was there, there was an implication in one of the things, one of the documentaries I was watching that um, Koresh had sexually sort of made his way into her life as well into that is absolutely true and the and the reason i know that as a i'm a primary source because i was in a meeting in 1984 when she got up in front of the entire congregation and told that story okay and right out of the horse's mouth and at the time she was spilling the beans david koresh had his hands in his head like this what are you doing? Don't uh, you know? He was very embarrassed. Really? He thought uh, he thought that he was screwed. Uh, but it's, it worked out for him. I mean, I was young. I was like eighteen, so I wasn't firing on all cylinders in terms of understanding the world and the way it works. So sure. I kind of, yeah. If I'd have been older, I'd probably have been like, "Hey, what? What's this all about?" Well, yeah, because <laughs> wasn't there something like a fifty-year age difference or something between? Right. Them? I mean, she, she so was... she was born in nineteen sixteen, and he was born in nineteen fifty-nine. Yeah. So yeah, wow. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Uh, so. so if I was to theorize, it was uh, probably some kind of manipulation tactic on his part. Yeah, I would. I would think so. As she well. was lonely. Well, yeah, and he wasn't necessarily uh, his backstory isn't that great either. I mean, there are there are uh... no, it's not great. Uh, I've actually spoken to some former girlfriends, and I won't say their names, but yeah, things are bad. Things are horrible in the backstory. Yes, right. Was he? Yeah. Uh, was he? 
there was uh, again a report of you know him being sexually abused as a child. Was he a sexual yeah, abuser himself? Yeah, and that's a story he told off and on. I don't know details, but uh, like I said, the book covers that. Yeah. Uh, so uh, you'll find. I think the author was able to talk to a relative of his, an aunt, that gave some information about that. So yeah, unfortunately, there was some history of abuse. Right, uh, right. It, it it's only I mean it's it's relevant clearly to the story we're telling here. You know Koresh's backstory because of what it led to, but it's also just indicative to me of the fact that hurt people hurt people. You know, and the, yeah, and that right. tends to be the cycle. Yeah. Um, the hurt which then causes insecurity and all that. That's yeah. right. That's right. And he came out. And he came out there. I don't know that he showed up in in Mount Carmel with the idea that he was going to be a prophet and take things over. I mean, it's certainly, yeah, you know, you the, know. The, at the time, the triggering uh, connection point was that he was talking to a family friend, and he was at a point in his life where he felt like he was lost, that he needed guidance, and he said, "I I need a prophet." And this family friend was like, "Well, I know a woman who says she's a prophet." And though Lois Roden was the person that she knew, so that was the connection. Mm. And so when he came, you're right. He he initially was a disciple, right? Yeah, right. And a true believer, he was. Yeah. yeah. All right. So that being the case, let's go ahead and uh, you know, in terms of that kind of setup, now you know, you 18 years old, you're there. How did that happen? What's your story here? Okay. Well. Let's see. Probably the best way to say it is that my father wasn't really the greatest adherent to his own religion, mm -hmm. which I suppose is probably typical in families. You know, you're brought up in a religion and you're looking at your parents and you're like, I don't really think um, dad and mom doing a very good job. <laughs> so <laughs> so when I was 17, my father started to fall away from his own religion. Now, uh, and my father was, 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 we'll just say that he's not a... Um, a self-analytical person, okay? So he's not going to sit there and look at his own behavior and try to figure out how am I affecting my children? You know, he's just bailing out of his religion because he's mad and just wants to forget about it. And he's not hes not talking about it. So I'm 17, I'm watching him, and I'm like, he's an apostate because he's already programmed me. I've already been going to the meetings and I've read the material and, and I'm like, yeah, this is our religion, but I can't tell him that because he's a type A personality. He gets gets angry. Okay. Okay. But then, and, and where were where was it that you were raised? Uh, I was raised in Southern California. Okay. All right. So yeah. you're not. But then we had moved to Texas hmm? by the time I was 15. So the during the time I told you about where David Koresh is joining the group, I I was there visiting regularly okay. and did see him there as like I said, a normal student member of the group. And I, I didn't know him well, but I did see him and, and talk to him occasionally. And what were your impressions of him uh, as an individual, as a person? He, he, was, he was distraught. There was a meeting where he got up and was crying and talking about what a sinner he was. And that was unusual in our group. We were very, um, you know, we sit in the pews and, and, and sit still and, and listen. We didn't cry and carry on. So it was unusual for someone to get up and start talking about how what a sinner they were and how they were crying and they were lost and and my dad at the time didn't like it and and later on when we were driving home he said 
that guy sounds like he's going to have a message of his own one day, <laughs> which was true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How prophetic yeah. of your father there. <laughs> yeah. But he, he didn't mean it as a compliment. Obviously. Yeah, no, I, I get yeah. that. So I get anyway. That. Um, so yeah, when David Koresh, as I said, approached Lois Roden mm-hmm. and he's, and she, he's given the green light to begin teaching. He eventually starts contacting people because we had already moved back to California. So all of a sudden we're getting letters and we're getting phone calls and we're being told about this new message. Mm. Now me, I'm like, well, Hey, if there's a new message, maybe it'll solve our problems. Uh, My father doesn't want to hear about it uh, because the thing that had happened, which is really important, which, you know, think buildings burn down all the time, but our administration building had burned down. And that had all the printing equipment and tape and tapes and tracks and everything was there. So we lost uh, enormous amount of uh, valuable material and equipment. And in our way of thinking, if if our organizational ability to do things is destroyed, then we're thinking, well, God must be mad at us. What <laughs> was a common belief in the group? And so and Vernon David Koresh was like, that's right. God mm-hmm. is mad at us. And that was part of his message. And he explained why the building burned down and was telling us that, you know, because of this and that. And I wanted to hear that because, unfortunately, Lois Roden was not necessarily interested in in dealing with that very well. She, I, I think she just wanted to move on and and not talk about the negative things about the building burning down. So there was a, a combination of things going on at the time that kind of fed into fortuitously giving him an advantage in terms of starting a message. Got it. Let me ask you, uh, when you were there and then you moved back out to California and then I I guess you made your way back out there for this new message, but during that time, under under Roden's leadership, was there a doomsday gun piling, you know, gun stock No, 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 there was never any guns. Okay, so no, we didn't have guns on purpose. Because we didn't need guns. Because God is protecting us. Why would you need a gun? Right. Victor Hoddeff, the original guy, didn't have guns on purpose. He's even taught one of his teachings was, "Yeah, we don't have guns here. God is our fortress and and protector." Right. That's why the guns thing is so weird. Because <laughs> in fact, I I didn't like it myself. But I kind of left right when it was happening, so I didn't. I wasn't involved with guns. Got it. But, yeah, was, that's we a, we yeah. never we never had a history of guns. But but the person who did first bring guns was George Roden, the son. Right, because the there, was that that of, there was he a shootout. There was a He was a rival. Yeah. So I think David Koresh was like, well, if he's going to have guns, and I need to get some guns too. Got I think it. that's probably what it was. And this, is, of course, is all happening in Texas, where it's pretty easy to get guns. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's right. Because there was a shootout between those two. At some point. That's right. That's another interesting story. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. So the property is valuable. Mm -hmm. David Koresh as Vernon Howell was exiled in 1984 and he was gone for four years. What was he exiled for? Well, he left because George was getting ready to, I think probably wanted to shoot him. Okay. They were that. David Koresh left voluntarily because I think he could see that if he didn't get out of there, he was gonna, there was gonna be a problem. Okay. So he left and he never returned except for like you just mentioned, there was a situation and like I said, George was mentally ill. Mm-hmm. So we, so this sounds crazy, but it's true. 
George Roden had dug up a woman out of the, 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 the cemetery that we had on the property. And there had been a woman who had passed away many years previously. And he put her casket in the church. And then he called David Koresh and said, hey, resurrection contest time. Oh, my now, God. David Koresh is not insane. Not and he was like, uh, no. But then, ding, corpse abuse laws. If I could get a photograph, if I could get some evidence, maybe I could get George in trouble. Uh, by the way, his mother had already passed away, so she's gone. Mm-hmm. So, so he's, he's not actually, in any of this. So, so at this point, during this little window of time where Koresh... At 1987. 87. Um, this guy is running the operation. He's running the operation, but because of his mental illness, there's followers leaving right and left, and he's m- mostly by himself, and then having to have rando people come in to just rent some land and live, and they're not really a religious element. Okay, so, yeah, so the whole thing had kind of fallen apart under him. It is, yeah, he because he, you know, and it's sad. It's sad. He's, he's, you know, he's mentally ill. It's very sad. Right. Yeah. So, so, so at this point, then, just kind of putting two and two together on our narrative so far, Koresh has not yet come forward with revelations or a new light, and and it, and you, this is not yet the point where you're coming back out there. This is, uh, he goes off for four years, and George ruins he, the whole thing. And then David Koresh, Koresh has a message. Yeah. But yeah, the, uh, if you say new light, I don't know if you're referring to a very specific point in history in our group where there was some special new light that came. That's uh, 1989. Well, I think so because I'm I, yeah. and I'm trying not to make a jumble of it here. I'm trying to. Yeah, I'm but that's to... so you're right. Uh, yeah. At this point, he's just trying to get the property back. Okay. So he can have Mount Carmel as a base of operations. Got it. Okay. So, okay. so as you said, there was an attempt to get evidence. There was a shootout. There were no fatalities, but there was apprehensions and arrests and, and a trial, which the ultimate result of the trial was an acquittal Yep. for the, the men involved, and including David Koresh. That's right. And then George himself, got himself in trouble with the judge at some point and was declared in contempt of court and taken into custody. And essentially the property was vacant except for the aforementioned rando people who have nothing to do with Branch Davidian teachings. David Koresh picks up his whole group, which is almost a hundred people and they just barge right in. Hey, we're taking over. So and they that was so that was 1988 and that's when they got Mount Carmel back and set up shop and so that's sort of the real kind of beginning of David Koresh's ministry re, in Mount Carmel like as a thing That's been in Mount Carmel that's right. Okay. okay. He had been ministering various places but yeah. Okay. I was not aware of that four-year gap in there and where he had taken off and come back. So very interesting uh, in putting all of these together. Now, to be clear, together. though, during that time, that four-year time, he's developing theologies and doctrines and teachings and all that stuff. But he's a very orally oriented person, so he doesn't write a lot. He speaks mm. and okay. and makes tapes sometimes. Yeah. Okay. 
And is this how you are hearing about him? Uh, yeah, like I'm, I'm getting tapes and, and when I'm younger and, and uh, listening to his message on tape or I'm there in person listening to him. Yeah. Okay. And what were your, as a young, impressionable young man, and you were obviously raised with this whole dogma and you were a true believer, how much of a true believer? I mean, how hardcore were you about <laughs> this stuff at that time? You know... My problem is I think too much (laughs) (laughs) because I'm a science oriented person and I always have been. So like, I like astronomy and I even had a real telescope growing up, like a honest to goodness one, Mm -hmm. a reflector, really expensive. And, and I knew a lot about science and stuff. So, but then I also had the religious aspect, which, um, and it was fine. It worked out. Okay. Uh, but Koresh was uneducated. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and then in addition to being uneducated, which is not necessarily anything wrong with that, but also very stubborn and very um, opinionated, mm. uh, which I think, you know, cult, cult leaders tend to be that way. They tend mm-hmm. to be my way or the highway. And, you know, so all of those types of personality traits that you might expect were definitely present. And so if I would hear something and I'd be like, well, you know, that doesn't sound right to me. Uh, I would raise my hand, you know, like, hey, wait a minute. In fact, one time I did that with Lois Roden in the room uh, because David Koresh was teaching and she was there and he was trying to impress her with how unified we all were and how she was needed to get with the program. And I raised my hand and said, I think you're wrong about that, Vernon. And he was like, you know, you shut up. <laughs> you, sh- you shut up. <laughs> so, but on the other hand... <laughs> But on the other hand, you know, it's kind of like a split, a double mindedness. I'm like, also, well, you know, but he's still a prophet. And yeah. So, okay. I'm so going somehow, back and forth. Well, a little bit. I'm wondering, was this just, was this just a reflection of the cognitive dissonance you were experiencing? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's cognitive dissonance. I didn't obviously didn't know what that was. I didn't know any, sure. I didn't know what critical thinking was. I didn't know what, I didn't know any of that stuff. Yeah, I just, I know what I'm you just mean. thinking to myself about things like, you know, that doesn't really sound right because I have a certain, epistemology in my head that I had developed growing up that never really completely went away. And it was very different from Koresh's, obviously, his own way of thinking about things and not and the way you know things is basically he believed that God spoke to him mm. directly. In fact, I, I think based on my own experience with him that he was uh, probably a schizophrenic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Another and it would be auditory hallucination. Yeah, I, I, so auditory I, hallucinators, schizophrenics, uh, then have to filter that through their belief system. Mm-hmm. And in Koresh's case, it's God talking. Some other people might think it's aliens or whatever, but Koresh thought it was God. And so, so for example, uh, to give an example, a historical occurrence during the siege was there was originally an entire plan. Uh, to everybody to give up. Yeah, early and on. They had they yeah. had broadcast. Uh, the 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 deal was, hey, put my tape on the air, and I'll come out. Yep. But then it didn't happen, and the and then and the it eventually came out. Well, God told David Koresh, no. Well, I really do believe that something did. A voice did come in his head and told him no. Sure. But I of course think that it was a it was a, a neurodivergent issue. Of course, of yeah. course, uh, and and yeah, I, I, that's apparent in his speech manner. Uh, everything yeah. about him is is very clear that he, <coughs> excuse me, is 
is not just some L. Ron Hubbard con man. He is all in on this. Interesting you should say that because some of the negotiators came to a different conclusion. They thought that he was a con man. I'm sure they did. Uh, that yeah. would have been one of their many laundry list of mistakes that they made on site Absolutely. in dealing with him. They made I would so agree many. With you. Uh, one of them in particular, I was reading something the other day and I was like, oh man, you you know, based on this guy, this negotiator just draws some conclusions based on talking to him over a number of days and having this very narrow experience. And he's it's not it's not really uh, very professional, in my opinion. No, their whole tactic. And I read up on this a little bit. Their whole approach as hostage negotiators was very problem solving oriented and very unemotional and it's like okay here's the problem here's the solution and they were wholly unprepared with their doctrine and protocols to deal with a cult leader a true believer I, an extremist i will say you know one thing there's a waco miniseries mm -hmm. now that miniseries let's not get too uh, you know, let's not say that it's too historically accurate, mm -hmm. but there's a, a main character in the miniseries who's a negotiator. And he was one of the negotiators who was more against the kind of thing you're saying. He thought that they should be doing it differently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so but there was, was, like you said, there was some disagreement. Oh, absolutely. There, and, yeah. and, 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 and yeah. the only yeah. people on site during that siege who I thought were even trying to resolve it in a sensible way were the negotiators. Yeah. Uh, but interesting though, because their main opponent and rival for control of the situation was the FBI hostage rescue team. And they were going there guns blazing and they Which, kept screwing things up yeah, for the, the negotiators. Whole, the whole you know. idea of needing a hostage rescue team is problematic um, in that situation it sure was i don't my based on what i know because i had been a member for many years i really don't think there were any hostages to be honest yeah it wasn't that kind of a situation um there were children yes but, but they but they in children, their way of thinking they didn't yeah. they couldn't think beyond the bounds of how they understood these situations to be right and that was their that was their systematic error in you know like, in dealing with this you know one of the ways they would justify this hostage belief is um they would see members holding up their children to the windows right mm -hmm. and so one way of looking at that is oh my god they're showing us the hostage children but of course it's just parents showing their kids look see all those bad people out there trying to kill us exactly remember how we remember how we had studies and david koresh told us about this that's, that's right. actually what's going on exactly right. and then there were other very aggressive and hostile actions they took yeah you exactly know. they're you're right they're destroying property they're mm -hmm. being disrespectful yeah it's crazy it was it's, nuts. Uh, it was nuts yeah it was a uh, it was a Obvi like you said, the negotiators on one side, the hostage rescue team on the other, and they're butting heads, and they're not even communicating very well, and it's a mess. That's right. That's right. And the whole thing sparked off by 
you know, uh, guns ablazing ATF agents who were more interested in TV time than they were in actually dealing with the situation effectively. None of those people who were there, every one of them were in over their heads. None of those people had a clue what they were doing and they were just winging it. That That's you right. Know? They actually, yeah, the, the agents were trained over a, uh, maybe three or four days on that specific operation. But yep. other than that, they didn't know what was yeah no and they uh, even and and the really and the thing that actually i mean just to critique the whole government response on this for a second uh, i know we're jumping ahead but since we're on this is you know they had a guy on the inside that's right (laughs) and they didn't even use him before the raid to like okay Uh, what's going on in there how many people how are we dealing you know not nothing there was so it was such a botched operation that Every level, every time they could screw it up, they did. And and also, yeah. David Koresh knew knew that he was probably a government agent. I mean, I think yeah. that it was pretty. I think it was pretty transparent. Yeah. Uh, because uh, the house that the agents were were living in was across the street from the front entrance of the of Mount Carmel. Mm-hmm. And I I remember reading this somewhere. Uh, they said they were college students. But, um, yeah, they, I mean, the Branch Davidians weren't idiots. Right, exactly. And when they would interact with these college students, they just weren't giving out the college student vibe. Exactly. You know what I mean? So oh, yeah. Oh, they no, put they... two and two together, and then one of these guys is coming over for studies. And But David Koresh was always very polite to him and, you know, just basically taught him the message like he would any other follower. Right. And he could go and come as he, and you're right. Once he found out, oh my God, I got to go tell the, the, the commanders that, that he knows, he knows that they're, yeah. That's right. But it was too late. They were already barging in. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's back up a second here. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about Koresh's ministry prior to the whole awfulness. Um, what was he pushing now because we have this four-year period of him running around with this hundred man congregation or thereabouts and you're in and out of this in terms of listening to him talking on tapes or you go out there and and listen to him what's the what's the message now versus what it was under the rodents right so basically what david koresh is doing uh is he is teaching that he is the ultimate uh savior of the world he is personally yeah and the way that works is his message is the seven seals of revelation Mm. so long story short revelation has a book there's seals the seals are loosed and then as the seals are loosed you read what's happening in revelation end of the world stuff he was the one in in the book. There's a a, a a supernatural being that is the one that looses the seals, and that is the Lamb of God in in the in the as a character there. Okay. So, for David Koresh, the key to loosing the seals is to be able to open the Bible and decode it, and say, okay, see this scripture here. Well, that connects with that. And that goes on for hours and, and days and weeks, whatever, however long you want to listen to studies, right? And he's his idea is I'm showing you the book. The book is the Bible. And that's the the Bible is the source of the secrets to the prophecies. And the prophecies are what you have to know if you want to survive in the last days. 
So these people that are students there listening to him, that's what they wanted to be called. They wanted to be called the students of the seven seals. Oh, okay. Uh, unfortunately, I think that's too much of a mouthful for the media to catch on to. But that's what they were. They were the students of the seven seals. Okay. And David Koresh was the teacher, and he was teaching them the seven seals. To flash forward a little bit, the final end negotiating tactic was David Koresh was going to write out his seven seals, which he was in the process of doing, but then the FBI became impatient and he never finished that process. Right. The reason that's interesting is because I remember I mentioned he was an orally teaching person. Mm -hmm. For him to write out anything is actually very unusual for him. Mm. He never wrote anything out hardly. So that would have been like a breakthrough. That maybe is, they would. Maybe he would have come out if he had finished his seals. Well, I don't know, but it's, it's possible. It's possible. There was so, so that's many... his message: seven seals, savior of the world. I'm the guy that can teach you. Nobody else can. You got to listen to me. And in fact, in the, in the, during the negotiation process, that's a constant theme. Mm -hmm. Can you show me the seals? Can you show me the seals? No, you can't. Only I, you know. Uh, if you just saying... show me the seals, and I'll give up right now. You know, but okay. they can't do it. But they yeah. can't do it. Yeah. And. Now, okay, so this is kind of the core of his new light or his That's revelation. The core. And then it involves polygamy. And yeah. it also involves, uh, unfortunately, um, the uh, nullification of marriages. Mm -hmm. And then he is now uh, essentially considered married to all the women in, in the group. And let's not sugarcoat this because that included yeah, all the it, girls. It's young girls. Uh, as young as 12 in some cases That's um, right. and there's sexual yeah there's sexual there's a statutory rape essentially yeah uh yeah it's bad it's it's really yeah. bad and there were um some believers who didn't but who couldn't follow along with that there were some women who left there were some people who left when this came out as the there new were, thing right. yeah yeah um when this new light came which that was a component of it the, mm -hmm. the giving up of of marriage um there were a lot of people a lot of people from australia who broke away mm. uh and one of them was mark bro he was a person that came into the group from loma linda university in 1986 he was really a big deal in the group um but when the new light came he saw that it was False doctrine, eventually broke away, went to Australia. Uh, some other people broke away. And so there was a, a, a schism in the group, really. Yeah. I was part of that schism myself. I finally uh, oh, is that what connected caused, up with Mark. Is that, Mark what caused you to, hmm? is that what caused you to break away? Was that revelation? Right. I, uh, I had been kicked out of the group. I have a whole video on why. <laughs> Because it's complicated, but essentially I didn't fit in with David Koresh's plans. Okay. And so he had to kick me out. Um, and then, but I didn't figure any of that out till years later. But then uh, while I was out of the group, I, I was still uh, in there in my head. Right. Uh, and then eventually got in touch with, with the guy that, that I mentioned, Mark Bro, And then he was able to show me some things. And then I, that's when I started my deprogramming. Got it. Okay, got it. I wonder if he never forgave you for speaking out of turn to him about how wrong he was. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that was, yeah, I, I was just... a problem to him. Yeah, sure. Because yeah. fr from his point of view, it's, oh, David, he's so deceived and he's, oh, boy, I hope I can straighten him out someday, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, okay, so this, so these revelations are are new and then this is sort of causing its own level of friction because now, now at this point... 
uh, you had said that there weren't guns or any of that kind of stuff involved until after you left. Did that start like, like uh, the after? guns were just starting uh-huh. uh, while I was in my last few months there. So in other words, we were, he was just beginning to purchase um, uh, automatic, uh, not automatic, but semi-automatic weaponry mm-hmm. uh, rifles and things. But I, and- I wasn't involved with any of that, but I had heard about it and, Sure. Um, what was the reasoning there? Because I'm kind of wondering. I'm trying to figure out as we're going along here, and I, I and I'm and I'm quite sure that there are you know innumerable inconsistencies and and contradictions all throughout his oral you know uh, doctrine. But what was the reasoning for taking this from a no, we don't need any guns. That's we you know we're we got God on our side to. Oh no, we got to arm up because uh, things are going to get bad, and that's the only way we're going to survive. Where, where did that whole line come from? Yeah, that's that's a hard question for mm. me to answer. Um, okay. Like I said, one thing I mentioned was that George had guns, but then George was gone. Right. So, and then even when George was around, the gun the gun level was very low. Um. So then this enormous stockpiling. Yeah. I'm sure you've seen some of the numbers. It's yeah. It's, millions of rounds of ammunition and and I uh, mean they really father, they really went to town on the guns. I that's why I'm so curious about it because it was not just one or two or five or ten. Right. They had fifty caliber that's rifles. Right. They had grenades. They had lots and lots of bullets. Right. I mean, wow. You know, it was like extraordinary how much they had stockpiled so in such I a suppose, short time. Um, I, so let me give my own theory. Yeah, tell me. Um, for a long time, David Koresh and the Branch Davidians in general, and this is a belief that went way back to the original Branch Davidians of 1955, we believed that we would eventually be going to Israel, to the, to the land of Israel, mm. to then participate in the setting up of a kingdom there. Uh, However, during the schism that I mentioned, Mm -hmm. individuals contacted the Israelis, whatever over there that you contact, to warn them about problem groups. I guess the consulate, maybe, I don't know. Somebody was contacted in in Israel Mm. on some official government channel. And we warned them, not me personally, but as a group, we ex-members warned them, hey, these people by this name and this, they don't, they've got polygamy and this guy's got, you know, we told, gave them the lowdown. Mm-hmm. And they were like, well, thank you very much. And we'll put them on the list of forbidden groups to come over here. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, David Koresh finds out he can't go to Israel. Oh. Uh, so oh. that's step one. Okay. Step two is now everything that was supposed to happen in Israel, I guess it's going to have to happen here at Mount Carmel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. And so, Hey, let's, let's set up camp here at Mount Carmel and let's get guns and let's just dig in. And cause it wasn't just guns, right? They had uh, meals ready to eat. They had, all kinds of uh, equipment and facilities to obviously to ha- to uh, last uh, quite a while in a siege situation. They were prepared. Yeah. 
They really, so they were, they I were t- ready. They had weapons. They had facilities. They had, um, uh, meals, whatever they, they were expecting it. Yeah. And I, then, you could and, say it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, well, but less that's it, what, uh, because, yeah. okay. So here's the one thing mm-hmm. in the Bible. There's this really super scary nation that likes to kill everybody, including the uh, Israelites. And that's the Assyrians. And the Assyrians anciently were pretty scary uh, superpower, mm-hmm. and they're a real historical thing. You can learn about them. And they used to just besiege cities and kill everybody and stab them and put hooks through the survivor's mouth, you know, and lead them on in a chain and take them off into exile. And Damn. Well, so our group, the, the Branch Davidians, we believe that the United States was the modern-day equivalent to the government. The government of the United States was the modern-day equivalent to the super scary, ancient, cruel Assyrians that like to kill the God's people. Now, was this a pre-Koresh belief? Yes. Okay. So it was always us versus them against the government. But the key thing, in the pre-Koresh days, the way that we we defeated the Assyrian was spiritually. Right. We would— get right with God and, and stop sinning and, and make sure that you obey the scriptures and do everything, you know, make sure you cross your T's and dot your I's and get, get, but, but Vernon trying to transition uh, David Koresh transitioned into, well, we're going to need guns. Right. To fight, at the, to shoot at the Assyrian. <laughs> Cause so they're going to the come. Thing. It's, right. a, it's a major shift in theological emphasis. Major. Yeah. yeah. Very major. Um, okay, so that's kind of how that shift happened, and it happened during that time period. And then he convinces these people all to get on board, and now we're stockpiling guns. Do you happen to know from your research, because I know you weren't there on site anymore, where did they get the money to do all this? I mean, it's not like oh, I can uh, just start stockpiling. There were individuals uh-huh. who were employed, and they would... It's it's not a portion of your money. It's pretty much your whole paycheck goes right into Koresh's safe. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and there were some individuals who had come into the group who had who had financial resources. Mm. So it wasn't millions upon millions of dollars, but we are talking about several hundreds of thousands of dollars of, of financial resources available to purchase these things. Yes. Okay. Got it. All right. So basically, it came in from the members and from their yeah. work, uh, and they weren't out selling trinkets. This was this is big money stuff. Uh, they were sure. they were engaging in here, and, there, and I think also there was some uh, business dealings in gun shows itself. I don't know much about that That's part of right. it, but I do know they were going to gun shows, buying and selling, and maybe there was some profiteering there. Very well, could have been. No, I think you're absolutely so. right because they were huge on getting guns from gun shows. That was a major source of their. Uh, stockpile now 95 percent legal stuff going on but Mm -hmm. my father who was there at the property when up until the atf showed up he just happened to be driving off somewhere to do some errands your father was there my father was living there at the time but when he was coming home he ran into the atf on the road and they knew who he was because he was one of the members. Yeah. And they took him into custody. He was ultimately not charged with anything, and they eventually released him. So he wasn't involved in the shootout. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But he told me, because he was an engineering machinist guy, 
And he told me that they were working on converting semi to fully automatic weapons. Right. But he said that it is very labor intensive and very difficult and time consuming. And yep. they didn't get very much done. Okay. But the that claim was his that... own words to me. So no, no, trying to, yeah. wanting to, but not getting much, getting very far with it. Okay. Because yeah. that was one of the claims, and and apparently semi-legit. Yeah, that, there was at least a few. Yeah. There must have been a few that were fully automatic, but I don't think that every single man in the group had a fully automatic weapon, if I was to guess. No, 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 and that was never yeah. claimed to be the yeah. case, but it was yeah. one of the reasons why the ATF was going in there in the first That's place. That's right. They, they, they were going in on suspicion of illegal uh, conversions and things like that. That's right. Uh, there was a, uh, there was also a neighbor who reported hearing, uh, you know, what they thought was a 50 caliber ri right. you know, rifle, which was which is true that they did have one of those. Yeah. So it wasn't that all of it was a pretext. It's just the way they went about it was so ham-fisted that they... You know, and, and Koresh kept calling him on it, too. It wasn't like he was a dumb guy. He no. From day one, he was like, you guys could have picked me up in town, you morons. Like, what are you they doing, you know? They could have they got him, sure. And they could have. It's, like, it's like you say, I think they wanted to... Uh, it was ambition. Well, there was, a TV, there was a TV movie made back in, in 93, right after the raid. And the theory in that movie was the ATF was having budgetary problems. So the theory was, oh, well, they maybe they needed to make a big splash. I don't know right. if this is true, but it's the idea of, hey, we got to get in the newspapers, I guess. I don't know. It seems to be a logical conclusion based on the facts that there was some underlying motivation that demanded on the part of the ATF command that this be a big, splashy media thing, uh, even to the point of inviting the media there. And again, every True. level where you could make a mistake because how were the Branch Davidians tipped off by that media they invited that, asking that is That is right. In fact, know? the gentleman who tipped off uh, the media or was tipped off by the media, which was a postal worker, mm -hmm. is my, was my, uh, my, my wife's sister. So my sister-in-law's husband. Wow. Yeah, uh, David wow. Jones. Okay. David Jones was a postal worker. He was on his route. Yep. And some reporters say, hey, buddy, can you tell us where the raid's going to be? <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, He's like, I got to go tell David, you know? Exactly. I mean, it was yeah, just that's exactly a, what happened. Just such a comedy of errors. And, yeah, it know. was. It's crazy. Oh, it was absolutely nuts. Like every level screwed this up somehow. Yeah. You know, and this is all pre-internet days. You know, I, we take yep. so much for granted now that that, that just yeah. didn't have yeah, that. There's no, yeah, there's no internet. There's no cell phones. There's no, no Google. There's no Google nope. Maps. There's no, I mean, nope. if you needed directions, you ask somebody and a postal right. worker. And this is, this is know. the boonies. Yeah. This, this is way Literally. out. Literally. Yeah. This is out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's not like there's a, there's a lot of people to ask. It's not no. like there's a lot of maps. No, this, this is back is in the farm days country. with the, there's nothing out there. Yeah. This is, it's Thomas guide maps. I mean, that's yeah. what you had, you know? <laughs> so, you know, it's all understandable. It's just also bloody stupid at the same time, you know? Yeah. Uh, okay. So, so getting back to Koresh here. So, cause I'm, I'm just fascinated by, you know, the, the guy, obviously, and his psychology, which was 
you know, he was not well educated, and yet he was he was calculating, he was clever, he was able to put two and two together. He was not insane that way. But his but his beliefs and his and his ego were in overdrive. Yes. Right? All the time. Yes. And and it and he just never really came down from that. And right. he gathered this small, you know, relatively small group of people around him. But tragically, most of them ended up giving up their lives for this. Um, you know, and there's and 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 we're not going to debate the conspiracy stuff of all of this. It was very clear there were cover-ups on the government's part. I, I don't think that's even debatable. But it's but there was also a great deal of egregious behavior on the part of this group, and they did need to be stopped. What they were doing was gross and illegal. So it's it's not like there's any side that's really got the white hat on with this one, you know. But with Koresh, what was your thinking in terms of what got you to go, okay, I got to get out of here. This is not working out. Okay, well, like I said, I was kicked out initially. Yeah, but then you came so, back. and So then I kind of spent a year in limbo. Mm -hmm. um, but... But while I was gone, the, the new light happened, which was, like I said, it's a major shift in teachings. Um, and I was married. And there were a few uh, people in the group who were married. Uh, one of the people was Stephen Schneider. He was the lieutenant. Yep. Uh, so Judy and Steve were a married couple. Um, the first clue I heard about this was I used to go visit my mother at the local hospital. She was a registered nurse working there, and she also lived at the compound at the time. She was a member. Oh. She, got, she got out later, so she wasn't around during the fire either. Good. Neither okay. was my sister. Uh, but she said, oh, we've got new light, and people like Steve Schneider and Mark Bro are having trouble. I'm like, what? Why would they be having trouble? And she wouldn't tell me, but my wife actually, who's smarter than me, said, I think I think he took all the women now. I was like, nah. <laughs> anyway, eventually <laughs> she, I did she nailed find it. <laughs> out. Yeah, eventually I did find out because I was sent a tape by uh, one of the ex-members, Mark Bro, and he explained some things to me. And Because uh, he was living in Australia. It was very difficult to communicate. It's expensive. I did get a letter and a tape. Uh, and then I was able to start thinking for the first time in a long time. <laughs> uh, so I started thinking about things and I just started reading and studying and thinking and, and trying to process. And, and I can actually, and I'm sure you've had a similar experience. You know, mm -hmm. you're a Scientologist and you're in that. And then you go through a process and then you're not in that anymore. And so your, your brain is just like, Whoa, you're yeah. just like going through all of these, these, um, realizations and, and, you know, you're reorienting your thinking and you're re you're reevaluating the way you know things. And it's just a whole thing that I was going through. And plus I was going back and studying the original writings of the previous prophets. That's another thing. Mm. Because like I said, if we're, if we're progressing truth, we got a truth and then more truth and more truth. I was like, well, but what about that truth back there? That actually seemed a little shaky. So I think we got some shaky foundations here. There you go. Yeah. Uh, so I was like, ah, oh, because the same thing in Scientology, I'm sure there's similar problems with this stuff back here. Maybe it's not so <laughs> solid. And, 
and oh, you yeah. start thinking about the, the the chinks in the armor and the chains of the the links are not quite so strong and it's like uh oh i've got some issues here that's basically what happened got it and so basically it started unraveling for you yeah it unraveled yeah 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 it unraveled all yeah. the neat little all the neat little stories and narratives that every had been carefully crafted or i started peeling back the layers and uh oh <laughs> right yeah. Well, I have to say, it's certainly fortunate that, you know, your family got out of there yeah. literally in the nick of time. I mean, wow. Yes. You know? Yes. Yeah. We, we, I didn't lose any family members, uh, mm. which is good for me, but yeah, bad for a lot of people who, like I said, my, uh, my sister-in-law's husband was David Jones, but unfortunately he perished, um, I think on the first day. He oh, was one of the ones he was who one was shot. Okay, yeah, because some yeah. of them were shot as well. Including now he him. was, uh, he was obviously at the compound. Now his wife, my my sister in law, she had already left because of disagreement. So it's not like they were together, but yeah, it was still very tragic for her. And then of course her children had lost their father. So right, right, right. Um, okay, I guess, uh, I guess I want to ask you now. I mean, having kind of covered the main points of your narrative with this are there any other you know crucial or important points to your story or to uh koresh's you know new light that we have not touched on that we that that we might want to make sure we we get in here well let's see um i get i i guess the uh so one thing i could i guess i could try to explain mm -hmm. is if we look at the membership profile mm -hmm. uh there were a lot of people who had come in from the adventist church uh and especially there's a particular location in the uk we had a lot of um they had a lot of uh recent members from a particular location in in great britain mm. uh who had mm. come in from the adventist church over there and the uh, the thing that made them vulnerable was this hook that Koresh would use where he would emphasize their belief in, in this, an Ellen G. White, the spirit of prophecy. Mm -hmm. So like, unlike a normal or a, or a conventional Protestant believer, it's just the Bible and that's it. We don't, there don't, there's no modern prophets, uh, but Adventists believe in a modern prophet, at least one. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of these people would be like, well, you know, if we have one, why can't we have more than one? Mm -hmm. And the Adventists don't really have a good answer for that. See, that's the thing. That's the weakness in Adventist theology. They can say, well, we only just have the one, and that's just the way it is. But it's um, not, you know, it's not obvious. I mean, right. maybe you could have more than one, right? In fact, they technically would say, well, sure, there could be another one, maybe, but you know, there, we don't know of any so far, but yeah, obviously if David Koresh comes on the scene and says, Hey, I've got a message and I'm a prophet. And, and then the other thing they do is, um, when Adventists recruit, they do what's called, sometimes it's called a revelation seminar. At least it used to be. Mm. So they would put up a sign out of a church and it would say revelation seminar. And, and you would go in and they would, they would take you through the cool parts of the Bible, the revelation and the Daniel and the prophecies and there's beasts and there's all kinds of crazy fire and brimstone. And some people kind of are interested in that, you know, uh, yeah. in other words, uh, we're not going through the, 
the dry parts with the gospel and and the, and the Jesus stories, maybe that's for later. We're going to go look at all the cool stuff. Right. And people come in, and then that's a revelation seminar. And then uh, as David Koresh himself complained one time, well, then I got into the church, and then all of a sudden nobody cared about revelation anymore. And he was like, well, wait a minute, you know, that's the that's the greatest book in the Bible. And then, you know, so he would just continue on and say, hey, you want to learn more about Revelation? And they would go, yeah, and they come in. And so that's why they were so a lot, not everybody, but obviously, in fact, the profile was they were recent converts, typically. So in other words, it wasn't Adventists that had been raised Adventists and their families were Adventists and going back, you know, it was always fairly new Adventists that had recently been pulled in told this story about our prophet and and the revelation and how, and then they're just continuing on in their minds with this project of learning more about prophets and revelations and yeah that's what they're thinking so that's why they were vulnerable yeah that makes a lot of sense with what i saw and heard i I've, I've heard a couple survivor accounts and um and they definitely have first gen energy in other words that's sort yeah. of like recent you know that convert that's right. energy first, right that's right they have first gen energy i like that yeah that's how i would put that and they because one woman who had a child and it was actually she got out and her child got out um because her you know finally uh once the child was was released her you know mother instincts kind of came into the came into kicking into gear because up until then she self-described as I'm not a, you know, this is not, I, I didn't think of myself as a human being or a mother or a wife. I was a soldier of God. I was, you know, that, that, that was the role we had. And it was very, and, and when you get that kind of identification going on, which is what I mean by that first gen energy, that kind of like, you know, really intense, passionate belief yeah. Um, it's, it's hard to break people away from that. That is, that is the kind of extremist mindset I will call where you, where the family ties and the social ties are really secondary, really take a back seat to the revelation. And that's, that's In why fact, we, I'll, you know, I'll tell you a story. Yeah. During the period I described where I was out of the group, but in limbo, and I hadn't fully deconverted, I had had some pictures taken of my family, just regular studio photographs of your family, and everybody looks really nice. And uh, I sent some to my mom, and she called me up later, and she was crying, telling me, I can't keep the pictures, David, I have to send them back. And I thought it was weird. I found out later, well, it's because, as you just said, David Koresh was severing family ties. He was yeah. telling people, get rid of the pictures of your family. Get rid of, you know, I'm your family. Uh, I'm, yeah. Exactly. That's what was going on. And I and, and th th this is one of the things that was becoming more extreme. He hadn't done that before. This was new. Right, right. exactly. This is, I want to, I want to, I want to use that to, to, just to stress a point here. Um, I'm asked often, and it's and it's always different. Each cult leader has their own backstory, has their own context. But often, I believe my my own thinking on this is that they figure this stuff out on their own. They don't have to go read about L. Ron Hubbard or Jim Jones to figure out how you manage and control. It's a group very of intuitive. It is because, because it's a, they it's a know. Mindset. Hey, if if you've got family, and that's you got to get that out of there. That's yeah. right. 
That's right. That whole disconnection, shunning practice comes into play right away mm-hmm. because they find that these followers are easily distracted from the message or the purpose or the cause by these ties, by these Another social, story. you know, and they don't want any of that. So they got to cut that off. Steven Schneider. Yeah. I spoke to his sister the other day hmm. just to catch up. I had been speaking to her during the crisis and then I talked to her recently just to reminisce. He was from Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. He had went to go visit family. Let's just say a year previous to the fire. Mm-hmm. And he has parents. He's from an Adventist family. Mm-hmm. So he's obviously on the outs with his parents because they're Adventists. He's not. He's now progressed. And anyway, when he goes and visits them, they're telling him David Koresh is a bad guy. And, and he's like, oh, no, you know. But then he goes and visits his sister. And she told me on the just recently, she said she had studied cults. She had studied how you deal with people. And she said she knew don't criticize the leader, don't attack. Yep. Just be, just be family. Yeah. And she fed and she sat down and they they would talk and they would have meals. And he began to deprogram. That's right. He began to tell her things. Mm-hmm. One of the tragic things he told her, unfortunately, he did go back to Koresh. Mm-hmm. But one of the things Steve Schneider told her, I wish I had never met David Koresh. Oh, my God. Destroyed my life. Oh. But he felt he felt like mm. he, he, he owed the people something. I had gone in at this far. I've made a commitment. The people are back there, including his own ex-wife, I suppose. Still legally married, really. And he, there's still all that. But yeah. Yeah, wow. so you're right. It, the family tie is what's getting to him. That's right. And they yeah. and they barely utilize that. Really, they were so wrapped up in the kids on site during the siege that they they sort of were able to play on some of those heartstrings, but they totally missed the, the you know the forest for the trees with that because they could have gotten so many more people out if they had even understood that much of the psychology of the situation. Um, the last thing I have to ask about is um, if, if from what all the things you've said, I'm trying to put two and two together and I'm having a little difficulty with this last bit. Okay. Okay. And so, because I really feel like I got a pretty good grip on the situation, and and I hope the audience has a better grip on it now as a result of our conversation today. I really do. That's the whole point of this. And I'm wondering though about okay, so you've got this this new light, this new messaging, and it involves building on a foundation of heaven on earth. We're going to have a new earth, new world here, right? And the guns and all of the stockpiling and everything, I guess, was to fight off the forces of evil or Satan or whatever, you know, should that day come where we're going to have to fight for our right to be in the new, you know, revealed world. But what, why would that then lead to a mindset on David Koresh's part of, I'm not afraid to die? Because he said those words to the negotiators and they totally missed it. They totally missed the significance of that, I think, right? When he said, I'm not afraid to die. You guys don't get me or you don't get what we're doing here. All right. How does that enter into this picture? Could you explain that to me? 
Are you asking me um, how he developed that attitude? Yeah. Because it seems like if you want to be around for the revelation, everything that you ah, would be afraid to die. So what? Right. How does that well, work? There had always been a doctrine that he would die. Originally, oh. uh, like I mentioned, they were supposed. We were the group was supposed to go to Israel, right? The Holy Land, right? So during that journey to the Holy Land, he was supposed to become like a modern Jesus over there oh. and start preaching in the Holy land and making a big thing sure, over there. Sure. And they were going to actually crucify him. Oh, that's what he saw in his future. Yeah, no, it's true. Oh, they, that makes yeah. everything make sense now. Yeah. He oh. was supposed to die. Uh, they were supposed to kill him because one of the reasons, in fact, I was just listening to him say this on a tape today, because I was doing some research. He was saying, um, well, they're, I'm, I'm a polygamist, and they're going to hate that, and they're going to kill me because they don't like polygamy. That would want for one reason. They were basically going to kill him because, you know, this guy thinks he knows the Bible, and, and he's he's evil, and but really it was going to be like a Jesus situation. Forgive okay. them, Father, and they know what they do. And it was a whole thing. Okay. It was a whole thing. It was a whole developed story and narrative that was all crushed when they couldn't they couldn't go to Israel. They had to stay in America. And so that's when they transitioned to Mount Carmel. Uh, but the but the but the death wish was still there. And I think that in his mind, he he I don't think he thought he could move forward until he died. The die the death was necessary for the glorification and the transition into his new supernatural uh form. Right. You know? Yeah. And that yeah. and that is where we we find a connection with um, Heaven's Gate, right? And Jim Jones and that. Yeah, sort it's all. Of... It's yeah. It's this. It's this. Uh, right. Death is the gateway. Yeah. To the. Mm -hmm. That's where. That's where. It I goes. mean, the Heaven's Gate people literally bags over the head, lay down, put yeah. the shoes on, everything. Uh, oh man, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It was ritualistic so, suicide in, the, in yeah. the case of Heaven's Gate. Here with Waco, it was suicide by FBI, right? But it was still right. I think um, I think during the siege, there was very often a, sin a sincere desire that hey, God, at any minute now, God's going to come down and you know, and it's going to destroy whatever. Something they're waiting for something to happen, right? And, and so when the tank started attacking on the last day and the gas yeah, and like, all right, this is it, you know, and yeah, well, you know, it's so, interesting yeah. because it also informs why Koresh would have a vision of, oh no, God said, no, we can't leave on day. No, what was that day or two leave. or three where they, yeah. they were lined up. They were going to go. It was going to yeah. be a done deal. And then he, at the last can't minute, go. he pulled the, he pulled the plug. Um, and then, uh, I just thought of something else. Yeah. And this is a personality trait of David Koresh. Um, in the trial that they had had from the previous shootout with George Roden, mm -hmm. David Koresh had to go and, and go to trial. Mm -hmm. He had to go to a courtroom. He had to sit in a courtroom and be in a controlled situation where there's somebody else up on in the bench, the judge controlling everything and telling, okay, now talk, now don't talk. And David Koresh was the kind of person that when he started talking, he would go. Right. 
and talk and and I'm not kidding, mm-hmm. like hours. Mm-hmm. For him to sit, I got to interject another funny story. Yeah, yeah. We were going through the fruit inspection stop into California one time. And there's a person that sits there and asks people the same question every day, all day long. Hey, do you have any fruits? Yep. And his answer to that question was not a yes or no. It was, hey, we're vegetarians. And he wanted to go on to this whole thing. And the woman's like, I didn't, you know, she's trying to shut him down. I Okay, so anyway, he likes to talk. He made a comment one time. I can never go through a humiliating situation like that again and be in a trial. Right. It was one of the most psychologically excruciating things he ever had to go through. Right. To have some other person telling him when he could talk, when he couldn't, when he's he's asked a question, Mr. Koresh, did you, what did you intend to do that day with the guns on Mount Karma when you attacked George Roden? Well, you see, I believe in the Bible and the seven seals. I didn't ask you that, sir. I asked you, a, you know, and he's having to, enormously frustrating for him i get that so my theory and i think it makes sense is that for him to be sitting there thinking boy if i let them take me into custody then i'm gonna have to go do that again yep i don't want to i don't want to i want to stay free in control i want to stay in control i want to stay in control because that was his whole world that's right the entire world that he created there was carefully crafted bubble for him to satisfy his. And L. Ron Hubbard is a perfect example. Carefully crafted world for your own self-fulfillment. You got it. Nailed it. Nailed it right there. That actually kind of closes the circle for me. Now I get it. Now that makes sense to me. Um, Wow. What a guy, what an effect he had on us, on this group of people, and, and on, ended up having an effect on the entire world as a result of his, uh, you know, madness, really. I mean, there really isn't any other, there's a lot of words for it, I suppose, but that's a, that's a nice reductionist one. It's, <laughs> we'll um, use. It's, a, it's a psychological thing. It's, it's a thing that he just gets into, and it's like a feedback loop where you can, you're never quite getting, you can't get enough, right? That's you're right. always... You know, I need more stuff, more more reverence, more admiration, more, you know. Exactly. In fact, he would describe himself going into darkness many times, which I think for him meant depression, what we would call depression. Yes. Yeah. He talked about, I, I went through an enormous period of darkness. Right. Because he would get depressed because, you know, he needed a new, and then he would always get new light. Oh, new light. Yay. You know. That's right. Yeah, just another point to mention of the uh, FBI, you know, screw up on this was when they did have adults come out of the compound and they were, you know, they were they were getting people out of there before everything went to hell. Uh, they immediately arrested them and put them in orange jumpsuits and put them in prison. Right. And so that was the yeah, the the guys with the guns, the FBI, they're like gonna really yeah yeah and so bad idea oh oh, i mean and and all of this is being televised all of it 
right? I mean, the world is like enraptured by this. And there's like mm-hmm. something on the order of a thousand or 2000 some odd media personnel on, you know, around the area. It was insane. It was a circus. And yes. And with all of this being broadcast, I mean, it was it was so, I, I to this day, I am still dumbfounded by some of the moves these guys made because, you know, such a thing fed perfectly not only into taking any hope out of those members who were in there that they could get out and have a life but it feeds his narrative you see what the what the the enemies of god are doing to us that's right that's right all feeds into it right and and none of them saw that none of them they were just clueless of what they were dealing with. And that's why I say they were in over their head. One could hope that nowadays it might be a little different, but frankly, I don't have such hopes. I, you know, I know that they have different protocols now in terms of dealing with hostage situations. And there's a little bit more understanding and communication if you get the right guys, but it's a bit of a coin toss for me as to what's going to show up on scene right. these days, you know, and these that's government true. organizations are, these are people who who feel very empowered to do a lot of things that they should not feel empowered to do. So yeah. anyway, I, I, I we we still have a lot of lessons to learn from all of this. And it's and there's no question that something like this will happen again. Uh, hopefully not with such tragic results, but I'm saying this kind of barricade uh, yeah. confrontation situation, you know. I would say in the current political climate Oh, eventually it's begging for it it's begging for it on either side ideologically yeah, uh, by yeah the way. exactly it you know could come any could anywhere direction sure that's right left or yeah. right right now all right well listen i really want to thank you for no taking problem. the time to, to to be on my show for an hour and a half here and break all this down out of your life and out of your experiences and your learning on this now you have your own youtube channel where you go into great detail about some of this stuff yeah I have. I've started a new YouTube channel on February 28th. That was the day of the ATF uh, raid. Mm-hmm. And I have 10 videos up now, I think. I put one out about every week. And I'm. it's called Branch Davidian History. There we go. And so it's about trying to tell the story in detail. And I'm, I'm telling stories from my own experience. I'm telling stories, uh, other stories that I know about. I'm telling stories about the theology. I'm going into more detail about some of the things we talked about in terms of George Roden and what he, what his role was and, you know, things like that. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I highly recommend if anybody has uh, had their curiosity piqued by this show, because we've really only put our toe in the the lake that is the knowledge to be known about this incident. There is a tremendous amount uh, to know about all this, but I think we've certainly covered a lot of the highlights here, and I want to recommend your channel to people, so I'll put a link to that in the show notes here below on the video. Thank you very much. Absolutely. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, you bet. And I I wish you the best of luck in your future endeavors with this, uh, because... It's important work. We gotta, we gotta, you know, you, me, uh, the people who do this work. We, y'all out there, you know, this isn't just a true crime podcast. This is, this has real world consequences, and and the more we understand people like David Koresh and the people who follow people like David Koresh, 
the more we can be prepared to deal with them when disaster strikes, but also the the fewer people we you know will succumb to or or fall for that level of extreme nonsense and and that's my mission in all of this and i and i and i you know it's not just about you know eating popcorn and and watching horrible things happen you know and i hope people Absolutely. walk away from this with that understanding so again thank you very much for for joining me today you're welcome all right, folks, uh, if you have not subscribed, of course, you need to do so. And if you have not shared this video, of course, you need to do so. So <laughs> get it out there. And I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.